This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Uh, this morning, as bizarre as it sounds, uh, I want to I preach an entire sermon on sleep. And this is why I think it's bizarre. And some of you will actually follow my instructions in the sermon and sleep. And I want you to know I see you every week and I don't blame you. And uh, I completely resonate with how you're feeling uh, right now. But the reason this is bizarre is because in my life, I have never heard an entire sermon on sleep. Uh, I was feeling ill-equipped and inadequate. And I began to ask the staff and some key leaders, hey, do you know of any sermons out there uh, on sleep, not that I would plagiarize them, but that I could benefit from them significantly and, uh, and at times quote them at length. And uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody I talked to, so not everyone in the church, but nobody I talked to had heard an entire sermon on the topic of sleep. But I want us to, to recognize uh, that sleep is one of the disciplines of the mature and wise follower of Jesus. See, when I hear the two words sleep and discipline in the same sentence, my mind tends to think this. The wise and disciplined person doesn't sleep too much. And while that's very biblical, it's just as biblical that the wise and disciplined person doesn't sleep too little. I want us to, sleep, to see sleep as a rhythm or a discipline or a habit, a habit that, that should be a part of a wise person's life. A mature follower of Jesus understands and values and engages sleep. But before we stand and before we pray and before I read the scriptures on which the sermon is based uh, this morning, I wanna remind you uh, of the series that we, we were going through in the spring that we put on hold four weeks ago. The series that we're in right now is entitled Seeing and Displaying Jesus, uh, or it's subtitled Beholding and Becoming the Gospel. And we have said that the point of the Christian life on this earth is to increasingly see Jesus so that we might increasingly display Jesus to the world. The Christian life is basically this. It is continually soaking in the unconditional love of God and showing forth that same love to a world in desperate need of it. We're learning in this series that what we need every moment of our lives is to see and receive and believe and enjoy all that Jesus is for us and to us so that in the totality of our life and in the nitty-gritty details of our life, Jesus can be to others through us who he wants to be. So we've been learning that Christians both increase in their Christianity in the ability to see Jesus, and they increase in their ability to display for Jesus. But at the same time, there's the sequence that we display him as we see him, like those beholding him in a mirror. Uh, you may remember that just before we took a break uh, for the summer, we were, we were having a mini-series within the series where we were asking the question, uh, where can we go to see Jesus? Where can we live with intentionality in order to behold the gospel? And the Bible is clear. The Bible is very clear. If you want to display Jesus to your neighbor and your family and your coworker and your world, if you want to display him, you have to continually see him. But the Bible is just as clear that if you want to see him, you have to intentionally seek him. 
that God has provided venues to us where we can see Jesus, be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, and thereby increase in our capacity to display him to the world. And so I wanna preach on the discipline of sleep as a part of seeing Jesus. Now, I don't have the guts to preach on dreams, uh, not yet at least, maybe one day. So I wanna talk to more than just the eight hours of sleep you got last night or less or more as the opportunity to see Jesus. What connection does the discipline of sleep have with seeing Jesus? That's the point of the whole sermon, but for now, let me simply say this. In general, the Bible encourages us uh, to see Jesus as both a gracious savior and sovereign creator. In Acts, Jesus is described as the savior and leader of his church, as the redeemer and Lord of his people. And so the Bible encourages us to see him, not just in his gracious salvation, that we might give that grace to others, but to see him in his lordship, that we might not think that we're the Lord. And so far in this mini-series within the series, our emphasis has been primarily on seeing Jesus as gracious Savior. But I want to spend a couple of weeks on the disciplines and the habits that help us focus on the fact that he's the sovereign creator. He's the Lord of the universe. He, right now, by his spoken word, is keeping everything held together. So there are the biblical disciplines and the rhythms that tend to help us see him as gracious savior. That tends to be the focus at worship, uh, daily private worship, his steadfast love, gospel community, seeing him and enjoying him in ways you couldn't by yourself. But the Bible also speaks to these disciplines and to these rhythms that tend to help us see him in his divinity, in his omnipotence, in his control. This week, sleep. Next week, Lord willing, Sabbath, rest. Not just that one day in seven where we stop our work and remember that he's Lord, but even every day, going home from our work and resting before we go to sleep. Sleep and Sabbath are two of the biblical rhythms that remind us that there's a God and we're not him. Our effectiveness in displaying Jesus increases as we realize and remember that we're not Jesus. In the short run, we might display Jesus more thinking that we're the Messiah. In the long run, we'll display Jesus faithfully and truly and more effectively if we remember that he's the creator and we're not. With that being said, I want us to stand. We're gonna listen to the word of God. But before I read, I wanna pray together this corporate prayer of illumination. I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to actually give us renewal as we hear the scriptures read. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts that the seed of your word might be planted and multiplied. May we hear your word, hold it fast, and bear fruit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first passage upon which the sermon is based is Psalm 127, 1 and 2, a psalm of King Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early 
and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. Mark 4, 26 through 29, and Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So I want us to consider the discipline of sleep by seeing three things in the Bible regarding sleep. First, it's possible to oversleep. Uh, Second, it's possible to undersleep. And third, it's possible to faithfully sleep. In our lives, we can oversleep, we can undersleep, and we can faithfully sleep. Okay, so first, quickly, the Bible is clear uh, that, that it is possible to oversleep, to sleep too much, to value sleep more than we should. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, the, the book to which King Solomon contributed uh, most of his writings, uh, in that book, uh, on the topic of sleep, on the thread of sleep through the 31 chapters of Proverbs, uh, the dominant theme regarding sleep is exactly this that it's possible to value sleep too much. I'm gonna put on the screen behind, uh, behind me Proverbs 6, 9 through 11. It's one of the many passages in Proverbs that address the sluggard. Uh, I forgot to put this in the worship folder insert. This would have been fun to read uh, a moment ago, but I forgot. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come, become upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the sluggard, the sloth, the idler, the one who hates hard work in the book of Proverbs is the epitome of folly. And Proverbs repeatedly states that the sluggard or the lazy one oversleeps, looks for sleep to provide something more than sleep was designed to provide. But the proverb is not saying that a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands will bring anyone to poverty and ruin. The, sleep, the, the proverb, excuse me, is, is, is clearly directed at the sluggard. It's directed, verse nine, at the one already sleeping who thinks a little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more rest will finally and ultimately satisfy me. And so in a sermon where by and large, I want most of us to value sleep more, I want to first recognize that the Bible does teach that it is possible to value sleep too much. But you see, in my community and in my own life, I think most of us primarily undervalue sleep. And I think we're tempted to use passages like Proverbs 6 and four to five others in the book of Proverbs, uh, and we're tempted to use them to categorize sleep as bad or for the lazy or maybe a necessary evil that I should do as little as possible. One famous theologian said, I find sleep boring. With all due respect, that is a misunderstanding of the totality of what scripture says about sleep. 
This is not what the Bible teaches as a whole. The Bible in total doesn't teach that sleep is bad or folly or unnecessary evil. The Proverbs say that sleeping too much is bad and folly and an evil. And so to be clear, the, the dominant theme in Proverbs on the topic of sleep is the danger and the folly of oversleeping. But the book of Proverbs says, the very, the very first thing the book of Proverbs says about sleep is that it's good and that the wise enjoy it and that the wise have sweet sleep. And so in the book that says five times oversleeping is bad, it says one time the wise enjoy sleep. That's chapter three, verse 24. As a side, an interesting side, why would the book of Proverbs, by a ratio of five to one, uh, emphasize the fact that oversleep is folly and yet the wise enjoy deep sleep? Think about that. You have to keep in mind that the Proverbs were collected and edited and arranged for young men going through puberty who are about to enter adulthood and marriage. Think with me. Who needs to hear five times that too much sleep is foolish? For every one time they hear that wise people enjoy sleep, uh, enjoy deep and satisfying sleep. Maybe high school males, maybe college age males, I'm just saying. But in totality, the book of Proverbs does not say that sleep is bad. It says too much sleep is bad. And then the way the Proverbs is written and what might at first feel like a contradiction until you begin to chew on them and begin to think about them, you begin to realize it's possible to sleep too much and it's possible to sleep too little. Because see, the workaholics in the room like me, we'll run to Proverbs 6 and we'll say, sleep is bad. And the young men uh, might run to Proverbs 3 and say, oh no, the wise sleep. But the Bible is telling us that it's possible to oversleep and it's possible to undersleep. So second, my primary thought for the morning, it's possible to think too little of sleep. It's possible to value sleep too little. If you would, get out, get out your worship folder inserts or just watch the screen behind me. I wanna look at these two verses from Psalm 127. And I want us to remember that this Psalm is written by King Solomon. Uh, King Solomon, again, uh, was the primary contributor to the book of Proverbs, not the book of Psalms. But in the 150 Psalms, a couple of them are written by Solomon, but they're, they're rare in that they don't tell us uh, to address God and they themselves don't address God. Uh, they read like the book of Proverbs. So instead of calling us to prayer, uh, direct prayer, you might say, they call us to reflection. And so while all the Psalter is worthy of our contemplation, meditation, reflection, and dialogue, Solomon's uh, uh, Psalms are, are particularly worthy of us chewing on them a little longer than we might at first think beneficial. So we're gonna do that. In verse two, Solomon references the one who rises up early and goes late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. In verse two, Solomon, Solomon is speaking to those who undervalue sleep and rest. Or better said, he's speaking to those who forego the gift of sleep and rest in order to get to work before others and in order to stay at work when others have gone home. In the Hebrew, rise up and rest are comparative. That is to say, the anxious workaholic addressed here is the one who gets up and goes to work when others are sleeping and the one who stays at work when others decide to rest. 
And what's incredible about how Solomon writes verses one and two is this. He doesn't say that working too much and sleeping too little is foolish or wrong, although it is. Solomon goes right to the heart, right to the value system of workaholics like me. And he says three times, it's vain. This is a word that is best understood in the English as ineffective. The word in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew word, is a different word from this word. That word in Ecclesiastes primarily means meaningless. But this word here means ineffective, to no avail, without accomplishment. What is Solomon saying in verses 1 and 2? He is not primarily saying that overworking and undersleeping are unproductive, although that may be the case. He's saying that the effectiveness and the accomplishments and the productivity in the workaholic's life is not fundamentally based on nor directly attributed to their undervaluing sleep and their overemphasizing work. Look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor ineffectively. So if the house is being built, it's first and foremost being built by God. Verse two, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake ineffectively. So if the city's being watched, it's first and foremost being watched by God. Verse two, it is to no avail. You're going to work earlier than others and you're working later than others. It is to no avail. These are not the reasons why you have sustenance in life. At the end of verse two, Solomon says, for he, the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. This is a bizarre thing for him to say in the flow of the psalm. We really need to press into this and think and contemplate deeply what he's trying to say to us. The Hebrew most literally reads this way, for he gives in sleep to his beloved one. For he gives in sleep to his beloved one. And the translators and the commentators, they will debate over exactly what this means. Some, like the ESV, will translate it and believe that it means that God gives the commodity of sleep or the gift of sleep to his beloved. But others think, uh, um, other more literal translations like the New American Standard think that Solomon's point is that the Lord gives to his people even while they're sleeping. And so that's why the New American Standard reads this way, for he, the Lord, gives to his beloved even in his sleep. And so the debate is, well, does God give sleep or does God give us things while we sleep? Yes, true. But it seems to me that Solomon's main point in keeping with verses one and two is that God keeps providing, God keeps protecting, God keeps growing us and our lives even when we're asleep. The point of verses one and two uh, is that the productivity in our life is not a result primarily of our own effort, but it is the result of God being at work in us and through us. Solomon is saying, relax. Solomon is saying, you can go to sleep and things won't fall apart. Solomon is saying, when you fall asleep, the world doesn't fall off its axis. 
Solomon is saying when you go to sleep, God keeps watching over you and orchestrating your life just like the billions of other people alive. Solomon is saying some of our disciplines are geared towards seeing Jesus as gracious Savior. But we also need some disciplines where we see see Jesus as the sovereign Lord over all creation. Now keep pressing into verses one and two. Those of us who undervalue sleep and rest, those of us who overvalue our efforts at our work, whether it's raising children or going to school or being a lawyer or being an electrician, whatever it is, those of us anxious about our work when we should be sleeping, we get caught in this proud and vicious cycle of thinking that it was our efforts that ultimately provided our bread and our sustenance and our livelihood in the past. And and all the while, Solomon is teaching us that that whole time God was providing, God was defending, God was keeping us. And Solomon is saying, listen, if he hadn't been, your efforts would have been ineffective. But think about this vicious cycle. God provides, I overwork. I think that my amount of work compared to everyone else is what provided for me. And Solomon says, you're eating the bread of anxious toil. He's saying, you anxious people, managing that house, overseeing those children, running that business, running that portion of that business. He's saying, you can work less and sleep more. And you can watch God continue to give and continue to defend and continue to provide all that you need. And so Solomon is saying, I want you to embrace the discipline of sleep to increasingly see that there's a God and you're not him. This is in part what Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter four. I'm gonna put it back on the screen. It's also in your worship folder insert. Jesus is teaching on the ever-expanding kingdom of God in this section of Mark. In this section of Mark, Jesus is also teaching that his kingdom is growing and flourishing and thriving. And he describes it like, like a mustard seed that becomes a large plant. And then in our passage, he is describing the life of those who have been saved by his grace. He's describing the life of those who have been transferred from the kingdom of death and darkness to the kingdom of light and life. Listen to how he describes our life. Listen to how he describes the way in which we advance his kingdom. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. But the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is is ripe, at once he, the man, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And Jesus is saying, you have work to do for my kingdom in your life. I give you responsibility over some aspect of my kingdom advancing. Therefore, oversleeping is wrong. But Jesus clearly tells us that we don't understand everything in this life, that we will never understand everything in this life. And that in his gospel, we're caught up into something so much larger than ourselves. And because we won't ever understand everything, we might as well sleep and rise night and day, learn over time that the king is advancing his own kingdom.
And while we're lowercase r responsible, he is capital S, sovereign. I wanna share with you a paradigm buster for me uh, that I came across this week. I'm gonna put it on the screen uh, behind me. Many of us, including me, think that we have to work into our sleep. But the Bible invites us to sleep into our work. Most of us think about life this way. I have to work as hard as I can until I need to sleep. But the biblical rhythm is that we first can sleep and then wake up and find God at work. And we can join him in that work. Did you know that from Genesis 1 forward, when the Bible talks about a 24-hour cycle, it almost always talks about evening and then morning. Almost never day and then night. Almost always night and then day. You can see it in Jesus' teaching. He says the man sleeps and rises night and day. If it wasn't for the repetition of this concept throughout Scripture, I wouldn't bring it up. But once my mind got around it, I began to realize that I think about working into my sleep. And the Bible says in the gospel, I can sleep into my work. We undervalue sleep. We undersleep when we think we have to sleep at the end of a long day. Instead of thinking that we get to sleep before we ever enter into the day. Do you see the difference? It's a massive, massive difference. Over time, the discipline of sleep reveals to us that there is a God who never sleeps, who never slumbers, Psalm 121, but we're not him. And Psalm 127, that God gives in sleep to his beloved. So finally for this morning, it's not only possible to oversleep and undersleep, it's also possible to faithfully sleep. So I first had the outline of something like some of us oversleep, some of us undersleep, some of us faithfully sleep. But I decided to not go with that, that outline because at this point I really wanted to emphasize the word possible. I wanna emphasize the incredible good news that it is possible for us to receive the gift of sweet sleep that God gives. All right, so first, I wanna tell those of us who undersleep, those who, like me, uh, live life anxiously and restlessly, I want us to know that we can faithfully sleep. It is possible. But, but also for those who oversleep and undervalue the work that Jesus gives you to do in your life, I want you to know that you can faithfully sleep as well. I want you to know that you can enter into the life that Jesus has for you after faithfully sleeping. So how? How can we all faithfully sleep more and more? Look back to Psalm 127, verse two. Solomon gives us a clue. Look at the last phrase of verse two. For the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. We will all more faithfully sleep. We will all sleep better, whether that means we sleep more or we sleep less. We will all more faithfully sleep when we enter into that sleep as the beloved, as the well-loved ones of God. I mean, think about it. The Bible tells us that some of us are looking for too much life in our sleep. 
And Solomon is saying we do this because we don't go to sleep convinced that we're already loved by God. That we look for life in our sleep because we're not living out of the life that God loves us. Uh, The Bible tells us that some of us look for uh, too much life in our work and therefore we forego sleep. And Solomon's saying we do this because we don't go to work convinced that we already have life as the beloved of God. And I want to stop and say I realize that there are lots of reasons why we don't sleep. Like if you have a newborn, your husband should not be elbowing you right now saying you need to repent. You are undersleeping. (laughs) I mean, there are some reasons why we don't get sleep. It could be circumstances in our life, could be physical ailments, could be physical realities, uh, it, it could be a bad mattress. But, but I want you to know, to the extent that we're sleeping poorly because we're looking for life in anything other than the gospel, to that extent, we will sleep better and more faithfully when we believe that we're the beloved. According to Jesus in Mark chapter 4, verse 27, there will be much in this life that we don't know and that we don't understand. And until we believe that God knows, that God understands, and that God deeply loves, we will not sleep well. Uh, One night this week, I experienced what many of us as parents have experienced over and over. My five-year-old fell asleep on the couch with his head on my lap. The rest of the family goes to bed later than Liam. Uh, we're usually at that point either playing games or watching TV in the living room. He doesn't really like to be upstairs by himself. So sometimes he will fall asleep uh, uh, at, the a- at the time a five-year-old needs to fall asleep, but he'll fall asleep uh, with his head uh, in my lap, his body just sprawled out on the couch. At that age, you're so flexible compared to me now. So I can't sleep the way he does, but just sprawled out. And as he lay there, dead to the world, peace upon his face, breathing deeply, almost snoring, I realized that God was giving me this picture of what he invites me to at the start of every 24-hour iteration of my life. To fall asleep in his arms, to trust his power and his goodness and his love to say there will be much in this life that I do not understand and I do not know. But my father knows, my father understands, my father deeply loves me. He is saying, receive the gift of sweet sleep. In Proverbs 3, when the sage tells the reader that the wise enjoy sweet sleep, it's right there in that section where he says that the wise trust in the Lord And the Lord is their confidence. Who sleeps well? The beloved one of the heavenly father. I wanna press into the word beloved a little more. In case you're thinking, okay, God loved Solomon uh, after Solomon built that incredible kingdom. Of course he's the beloved one. Listen to this. In 2 Samuel 12, The birth of Solomon is recorded, and in verse 24 it says this, at Solomon's birth, at his birth, and the Lord loved Solomon. Verse 25, the Lord sent a message by Nathan the prophet, and he, nobody knows who he is, it could be the Lord, it could be Nathan, it could be David, his dad, he called his name Jedidiah, which means the beloved of the Lord. Solomon went through his life with two names. 
Everyone else, everyone outside of my family calls me Solomon. Everyone in my family calls me the beloved of the Lord. And Solomon is teaching us that in order to receive the gift of sleep and to get the gifts that God gives when we sleep, we have to embrace and believe and enjoy this fact that we're already his beloved from even before the time when we were born. Solomon is saying to us, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn. It's already yours. In Mark chapter six and in Luke chapter nine, just two chapters after Jesus is teaching on sleep, we read of a time when Jesus sends his disciples out uh, into the work of advancing his kingdom. And if you remember, what happens is they come back and they're jazzed and they're pumped and they're elated. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. They were convincing people of the truths of God. And how does Jesus respond to them? He says, we need to get away. We need to get to a desolate place. You need to rest, sleep, depending on how you understand that Greek word. And he tells them very directly, do not find gladness in the success you just experienced in work. Find your gladness in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. In other words, Jesus said, don't find life in your work, but find life in the fact that God wrote your name in his book and set his affection upon you before you were born. Rejoice in the fact that you're beloved. Get some sleep, and then we'll go back to work. You see, the disciples, like me, wanted to go from their work into their sleep. But Jesus is giving them the opportunity to understand that in the gospel, we can go from our sleep into our work. That if the Bible was about religion and us earning God's favor, we would have to work into our sleep. But because God, in his grace, gives us his favor in Jesus Christ, he says, in keeping with that, you can sleep into your work. You see, I often have people say to me, Ted, how can I know if I'm believing the gospel? We talk about the gospel being in our heads and not in our hearts. We talk about this gap between what's going on in our heads and the doctrines of grace and what's in our hearts living out of that grace. Here's an incredible diagnostic. Sleep. When we sleep too much, we're saying we haven't found life in the gospel. When we're sleeping too little, we're saying we haven't yet received the life that's given to us in the gospel. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. And when we do, I'm gonna remind us of the fact that we are the beloved children of God because the beloved one, in whom the Father was well pleased, gave us his record and his righteousness and his life and the Father's love on the cross. We're gonna talk about the fact that it's not just this nebulous love of the Father for us before we're born, but it is a love purchased by Jesus through the beautiful life and the horrific death of the cross. Before we do that, we're gonna sing about it. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Father, we come to you now and we thank you that you have made uh, this life so complex that we can't understand it. And we thank you that you have invited us to a childlike faith where we don't have to understand it all, 
but we can understand enough to say our Heavenly Father understands and knows and loves. I'm gonna lean into him instead of my own understanding. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave us your status of righteousness, that you gave us the the love the Father had for you. We thank you that we start this life with our names already written in the Lamb's book of life, the, the book that was written before the foundations of the earth. We thank you that because we, get, we haven't earned your love, we can't unearn your love. We thank you that we are those here being reminded yet again this morning that Jesus, we need you far more than we could have ever imagined. But in you, we have far more than we could ever dream. Would you be with us now as we continue to worship you in song and in sacrament and prayers? Would you continue your saving work in us? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You know what I realized this week is that I need a righteousness from Jesus in the arena of sleep. I tend to think I need Jesus' righteousness when it comes to my anger or when it comes to my inability to sacrificially love other people. (laughs) I tend to think, okay, I objectified that person. Jesus served that person. Jesus died. I don't die. He gives me his righteousness. Okay, there we go. And what I realized this week is that I needed Jesus to sleep faithfully on my behalf. That my need for him is far greater than what I could have ever imagined and his provision for me is far more than I've ever dreamt up to this point. No pun intended. I think about the time where Jesus is on the sea and there's a storm. And he tells his disciples to get him to the other side And so he's not mad at them for not falling asleep. He's mad at them for waking him up in the midst of a storm that scared them deeply as professional sailors. And Jesus says, I'm not gonna get up and be afraid with you. And he says, where's your faith? Indicating that his sleep was built out of faith. And when little things, little storms happen in my life compared to that storm and I can't sleep, I need to know that Jesus slept righteously for me. And then at the cross, when his blood is shed, it's shed for my inability to sleep. And when his his body is torn apart, the perfect righteousness of sleeping well is torn apart so that I can participate in it. That's the sacrament of communion. It's sinners coming forward and saying, I cannot do this. But Jesus, in every way needed, did it for me and gave it to me on the cross. Our need for his righteousness doesn't stop in those three or four sins we think about the most. Our need for his righteousness covers the span of his 33 plus years. That in all of that, he earns the Father's love for us and by grace he gives it to us before we If that's your hope, if that's your faith, if that's your belief, this is your table. This is not for people doing it right. This is for people receiving from Jesus the fact that he did it right for us.